Welcome to a new sub-series within the AP Podcast Show called Icons. Now, believe it or not, AP is going on 25 years on this planet, actually 2010, but I'll start a little early. And we featured a whole hell of a lot of artists on our cover and our pages, many of them receiving their first serious national magazine cover with us. From Nirvana to Nine Inch Nails, The Smashing Pumpkins to Radiohead, Blink-182 to Fall Out Boy. Our first guest in this series has been on the cover of Alternative Press three times. His band's first national cover in December of 1989, a follow-up in March of 1994, and a November 1999 cover spot for his first solo record, Euphoria Morning. His talents to be able to belt out a rock and blues, back road, four octave vocal range, and his charismatic rock star good looks have probably inspired more local bar band lead singers to stand on a stage for the first time than we'll probably ever know. While the songs he's had a part in creating are permanently embedded into every must-have iTunes rock playlist for the rest of life on Earth. Our guest, iconic lead singer, Chris Cornell. If you check out Chris Cornell's YouTube page comments, they tend to thematically fluctuate back and forth between something like, um, Hey Chris, you have an awesome voice no matter what you do, liking your new sound, to something like, I see you're growing your hair out again. This is for a sound garden reunion, right? Roughly 27 years after first sitting behind a drum kit in a local band back in his hometown of Seattle, Washington, Chris Cornell, now a multi-platinum artist who's been associated with two of rock's most influential acts, Soundgarden and Audioslave, has found himself to be either honored or hated, depending all on how he sounds in whatever music track he just released. Soundgarden? He's a god. Temple of the Dog? He's still a god. Audio Slave? He's a demigod. First solo record, Euphoria Morning? He's a god again, if you like his Jeff Buckley side. Second solo record, Carry On? He's hated. James Bond theme, You Know My Name? He's a god again. Third solo record, Scream, produced by Tim Milan, WTF? And it's not like that he's being singled out in this great fan fight club that he's found himself to be surrounded by. All artists who become known for one sound, in one era, for one point in that fan's life, are more or less stereotyped in that fan's eardrums for the rest of their careers. And if the artist tries to stray too far away from that stereotype, the fan, ultimately, rejects them. And that's where the sellout lines start to come in. Whether it's via Twitter, a Facebook note, or a comment on an unkempt MySpace page. But Chris Cornell doesn't mind the debate. He's grown comfortable in his skin and in his talents, and he's become successful enough where he can take those wing-stretching risks that a lot of artists only wish they could take. Thus, the new album with Timbaland at the helm. Across this country, in guitar centers on Friday nights, there's a great debate being held right now by the guys back amongst the wall of guitars. Is Chris Cornell showing his ability to adapt and embrace the current sounds, or is he just jumping the shark? Kind of like the debate about Madonna, except Cornell can actually sing. Now, based in Paris, a father of three and the husband of his darling Vicky, quote-unquote, as he refers to her almost daily on his Twitter account, Cornell enters his 45th year on this planet with the clear idea to stop burying his head into his career so much and stick it out into the world to see what he's been missing all these years. A rock star taking a step back to enjoy his life a bit? Now that's something to be envious of. And regardless of whatever project he decides to do in the future, and despite whatever it may sound like, whether it's something like uh, that could have been an unreleased B-side from Down on the Upside, or maybe a European trance record remix by Armin van Helden, Chris Cornell will continue to be known, seen, and idolized as one of the greatest rock singers of our generation. 
And that's something that all those guys sitting in the back of Guitar Center will undoubtedly agree upon. This is Mike Shea with the in-studio assistance of AP web editor, Tim Coran. All has been lost and all has been won. There's nothing left for us to say. But now I know that I want to be alone today. So if you find that you've been feeling just the same, One of the things that um, I've started to learn a little bit more uh, about you was that um, your uh, background with the restaurant biz. Mm-hmm. When you were back, when you were a teenager, mm-hmm. back in Seattle, you worked at a, a, a wholesaler um, scraping uh, fish slime yeah, and guts. Um, my my first real job, I suppose, there's a. I was a busboy, like at a buffet restaurant, kind of, and that was awful. Um, and it was really, really hard work, and you basically didn't make any money. And and so I quit that job. Um, it was the and I ended up. Uh, I was just sort of. I lived in this part of town um, in Seattle. That's uh, near the water where where the all the fishing vessels would port the Alaskan ones. And and um, so you know if you see the if you see the reality show of the, all those Alaskan crab fishing boats yeah, yeah, what's, yeah. what's it called again the, the most deadliest catch right? dead, yeah that's where that's where all those boats are when they're not fishing and so i walked by this store and there was like a help wanted sign kind of thing and then and also an article from uh, from some section of the newspaper about the guy opening it and i went in there and that was my first i guess my my first job that I had for a while, which was yeah, I just I just hosed down fish line and cleaned <laughs> up, literally. And I, I always thought this that there's got to be a better way to do this. But there would be a fillet guy who would fillet tons of fish and and just leave in his wake piles of fish carcasses. And and they would fillet out, you know they would take every part that that's possibly edible out of the fish and just leave what's left. And and um, I would basically bag it with like gloves on my hands and just put it in like these really tough kind of plastic bags and then throw it in the dumpster and it took a really long time and I always feel like there's got to be a smarter way which I'm sure there is <laughs> to do that but I would spend yeah like 10 hours a day six days a week doing that pretty much I remember on Twitter wow. the other day you said uh, th- thanks to you guys I don't have to be uh, scraping fish uh, fish slime anymore yeah that's um something I think for me, I, I don't know. I just never will forget what it was like. To, I remember having to make a decision between um, getting rid of this guitar that I loved or not, because basically I couldn't afford to have a guitar and an amp. I could only have one or the other. Okay. And so obviously, you know, you have to choose on the guitar side, because what are you going to do with an exactly. amp if you have no guitar? And so I had this like. ES three forty seven guitar that I'd found and I got a really great deal on it. It was beautiful. Um, I saw it the other day on a YouTube video from from eighty six or something. But I had to get rid of it because I couldn't because I needed an amp to play on stage. So you know it was it, it was like that. I traded that guitar straight across for a for like a cheap um, Mexican Stratocaster and an amp, and that was when I could first actually plug in and 
<laughs> you know, uh, some of my friends that actually work in the restaurant biz or they were bar, they were working in the bar biz, they can go into a bar with me mm-hmm. and they can look and they go, I can tell you exactly how this place is not being run right. Mm-hmm. And you have a restaurant now mm-hmm. uh, in Paris, uh, Black uh, Cal- Calavados. Calavados, yeah. Yes. And, uh, and you know, it, 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 right after that point, you were actually an assistant to the chef. Uh, at well, a- I became like sort of a, um, you know, uh, I, uh, being a, working for a seafood wholesaler, cleaning up slime, when they, they went out of business eventually. And at that point, like I knew all of the different people that worked in restaurants. So then I became like a dishwasher. I moved up to dishwasher. <laughs> but once I did wow. that... Um, I didn't know the dishwasher wasn't the lowest. No, it is Definitely actually... would much rather be washing dishes, believe me, <laughs> than cleaning up the slime. I had a runny nose for like six months. Like, wait, cats would follow me home. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, then then I moved up like and and as a as a starving musician, the restaurant job is a good thing, because mm. um, like, I did other stuff too. I did I did um, dock construction and other kinds of work, but in, in a restaurant, there's food around you all the time, and um, I didn't always necessarily have enough money to get through the month. But like I'd go to work, I'd eat all day. Like when I when I left the restaurant work, and and was starting to do little indie tours and coming back and doing like. Um, construction. I lost ten pounds like right away because because there was no food. <laughs> so I didn't mind it. I actually liked restaurant work. I you know it was kind of cool to work around food. Um, it it's not a bad thing to do. You know, well, it's, it definitely helps when you are in a band and then you you know you're struggling on that end and then you're going to go there. So the question the question was. Um, you know, with with your line of with your expertise now, and with everything that you're doing with the restaurant, is, is it is there a rule of thumb um, to keep a restaurant working right? This may seem a little odd, but I'm just curious to kind of um, get your opinion on it. Well, really, it's all it's like any kind of small business. It's it's like how much does what's coming in the door cost versus how much is what's going out the door, and then. Um, getting people to come and the restaurant business is tough um it's it's one of the tougher businesses to be in most of them don't i think like 15 percent of them survive yeah the fail rate's big yeah yeah. it's like clubs Mm -hmm. and and um after that um it sort of has a life span usually you know and then the and then kind of the clientele change and and for me for me i think it being someone where you can attach a name, some type of celebrity name to it that draws a few more people helps a little bit. Right, right. It helps your odds a little bit. But still, we're talking about um, a guy from Seattle who ha- ha- who's like co-owning a restaurant in Paris. So I'm not sure how much it really helps. <laughs> you know. It provides more depth. It provides more depth. Um, so the, the story is, is that you, uh, that you, uh, you, you, you snatched some Beatles records from a friend of yours that was getting kicked out of a, a house, mm-hmm. snatched it out of the basement. And, um, and that's when you fell in love with music, more or less. Yeah, I had memories of music before that. From even, you know, my, even before three, I, mean, I have really early memories of music. Um, but that was the first time I remember kind of discovering that as something that I was going to do in my spare time, like, you know, rush home from school so that I could go to my bedroom and crank records and listen with headphones on. Or um, I think I inherited one of those record players that sort of folds up like a suitcase, but it's a stereo. And oh, yeah. you take the speakers off the side and then the turntable flops down. Um, and it sounded pretty good. And that was kind of my thing. So, yeah, I've, 
I, I'm not sure how many records I got. I definitely got the pretty much all that the Beatles had to offer back then, uh, including repackagings already. And um, that period, the, whatever it was, I don't know how long that lasted, but that that got me into realizing that music was important to me as a fan. Mm. Um, there was no concept of being a musician or being in a rock band at that age or in, you know, in Seattle. I, I didn't even understand it. I just I understood that. I loved music. And One of the first bands was the Shemps. Is that right? That was actually... Um, it was you and Kim. That and... was actually probably the second to the last band I was in before Soundgarden. Hmm. So there's a long period of bands before that. Was there a rockabilly band? No. The the Shemps happened... I actually ended up <laughs> making a phone call um, because there was an ad in the Rocket magazine, which was like a free music Right. Monthly, maybe, I think. And um, it was the Shemps advertising themselves as a, as a rockabilly band. And the Shemps weren't really a band. They were a guy named Matt Dentino who basically, he lived um, under, the, under Hiro Yamamoto's staircase. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he kind of, um, he's a very, very talented but very eccentric guy. And um, he just was basically putting a covers band together and... Um, rockabilly at the time was kind of fashionable and it was something I, I had been a, in a drummer in a whole bunch of bands a bunch of really bad bands and doing like restaurant work and then moving drums around didn't appeal to me and I suddenly discovered that singing backgrounds from drums and stuff like that and, and singing lead vocals from drums sometimes that maybe that's something that I would try so that mm. was the first call I made I think mm. was to the Shemps to see, well, well, maybe I'll just sing for a band and see what that's like, and I won't have to move drums. And um, it was really just uh, by chance. Nobody liked the band, and, and it was really just a covers band, I think, so that Matt could maybe make some money to buy food or whatever, you know, because he didn't seem to want to have a job. He wasn't like a normal person. You know, the rest of us all worked really hard. He didn't seem to want to. There's nothing wrong with him. He just didn't want to have a job. So... We played one show. We all hated it. Hero hated it. I hated it. Kim hated it. He, we weren't all sort of in it together. I believe Hero was the bass player, and Kim was would fill in when Hero couldn't play, and he would play Hero's bass guitar. I think that was how it went. Mm. So I met all. I, I met Matt and Kim and Hero all at the same time, and um, and then I was just talking about this recently because I still have the bass. The what happened was I. I decided that I'd been in a series of really crappy bands and that there was no way I was going to find a band that was that was going to be my dream band unless I participated somehow in helping create that musically. Mm-hmm. So I decided to pick up guitar and bass. And so I bought this this Gibson G3 bass from Hero and uh, I, I still have it. Um, and I owed him money on it. And, and so I'd, I'd met them once or twice and then that was it. That was the end of the Shimps and... I owed him money, and it just so happened my roommate was um, going insane at a time that I called Hero and said, "Yeah, I still I have your hundred dollars that I still owe you on this base." And he said, "Okay, cool. Do you know anyone that that needs a place to live? Because my roommate's moving out." And I said, "Yes, I do." Um, and I want to move right now. <laughs> that's when you moved in with him. Okay. Yeah. yeah and, okay. and he said, "Great, come up, you know, move in." And that that's pretty much the birth of Soundgarden, really, because I was a drummer and he was a bass player, and so sort of by default we started jamming with guitar players immediately. Mm. And um, 
we tried a couple people and in, including even Matt Dentino, the crazy guy under the stairs. And then <laughs> um, and then he brought up Kim, trying Kim on. And I didn't know if Kim could play guitar or anything about Kim's guitar abilities at all. I, you know, we played like Stones covers a couple times and that was it. So Kim came in and um, it it was like one of the, you know, it was just like striking a match. Like we had 15 songs in a week or something, you know. And by mm. the, once you have 15 original songs um, that you can remember and play through and you're excited about, you, you're a band. Yeah. And, you know, and that, was the, that was it. With time, um, I kind of noticed, uh, uh, you know, this is actually this early issue of AP. Um, there's a quote in here uh, where Kim talks about that how much um, crap the band was being given in the early days mm-hmm. about, um, uh, you know, being considered a Led Zeppelin ripoff band. Yeah. And many, many, many years later, when Down on, um, <clears throat> Down on the Upside came, uh, uh, came out, the... Uh, Entertainment Weekly comes out and says there haven't been that too many bands that are able to accomplish what Soundgarden have done besides Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so it's like you mm-hmm. get trashed for being like it, and then you get honored to be like them. Yeah. Um, so back then, there's been so much written about who you were influenced by. Was it the Butthole Servers? Which is, is it the Stooges? Is it MC5? Is it so forth? Who were you listening to back then? Who were you guys? Those initial first rehearsals. We were um, we were into the. It was mostly. The U.S., but also a little bit British and Australian indie scene at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I was discovering the Meat Puppets and Husker Du and Sonic Youth and Bad Brains and Butthole Surfers and um, like you, UK bands would be like Wire and Bauhaus and things like that. Because right. um, Kim was doing a DJ night, wasn't he? He was doing a Kim, he was spinning at Scoth clubs or something like that or whatever. No, it's, Kim actually had a, sh- a, a radio show, radio show. on right. uh, KCMU, which was the college station. Mm. Um, and so he introduced me to some things like one day we were having a rehearsal he brought in um, a what is this album which is uh, Alan Johannes and the uh, and the other three members were all what became the original Red Hot Chili Peppers mm. um, and that so that was what we were listening to and kind of what we aspired to be a part of and somehow I don't know you know it, it's it's partly just because we were children in the 70s I suppose but one day we just found that we could kind of infuse this huge 70s rock riff thing into what we did. And what we originally initially did was this really quirky, uh, a lot of time signature changes, very arty, um, very quirky, awkward, sort of post-punk indie-ish kind of sounding stuff. And then we started introducing influences that just weren't normal for, for, I guess, post-punk music. And also... Um, we didn't look like it either, you know. We didn't. We didn't really have that sort of, you know. I don't even know the Echo and the Bunnyman kind of shoe staring look. There were different divisions of it, or that super aggressive kind of um, uh, DC hardcore look. We just sort of looked normal. And Kim had long hair, and I actually the what first influenced me to grow my hair long was a picture of Henry Rollins on the cover of Option Magazine where he had long hair. (laughs) And I thought that that was the most punk rock thing that I'd ever seen because at the time, um, Black Flag was kind of the epitome of of the U.S. hardcore scene to me. And he's running that look on the magazine. and, And it was at a time when, like you said, having any sort of comparisons to a 70s band or anything 70s or anything that was hippie-ish 
um, was a was a huge negative. Right. So that w- was actually the initial <laughs> thing that that where I thought that's the most punk rock thing to do. Like right. Mohawks are out. Look, looking like that is in because because his peers are going to hate him for that, and he knows <laughs> it. And he had a look on his face like he knew it, and I loved that. <laughs> there was a quote that actually Kim said in the story back then in, in uh, 1989, uh, where he was talking about when you guys were playing for a lot of the record company people down in LA and things like that, and he felt like the Southern California people didn't get it. And he's like, he's like uh, the people down there kind of would look at him, look at you guys with this look of like, what are these guys doing? Yeah. Why are they so loud? And why are they dressed like they just got back from a bike ride? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was no like the there was a different concept of performance. I think you would call it like the the concept that you would wear the same clothes on stage that you would wear off stage w- was um, was new to the to like the that sort of crowd. To us, <laughs> it's, you know, the first time someone asked us about wardrobe, like you know, stage wardrobe, like what what do you mean? What are you talking about? Um, we didn't get it. Uh, and so we would go hanging out in, in the, whatever it was, you know, the, the lobby area where, uh, of a hall where we were going to go play a show in, and then we would go play in the same sort of ripped jeans and shirts we were wearing, and people thought that was weird. Mm. You know, we didn't have any, we didn't even add anything, you know. <laughs> we didn't tie on any leather straps or anything cool, nothing. <laughs> you know, we just sort of went up and played our music. Um, and that, that, you know, that was... Uh, that was also, I think, a part of it. Um, I, I think it was, it's a cyclical thing, and I definitely see it with hip hop a lot now. Right. Um, I right. saw it with rock music then, and that was the, that, um, particularly on TV and in videos, which were very powerful at the time, mm-hmm. um, the bands were sort of separating themselves from their audience. There were, there were a lot of, um, videos where they would show a band you know getting out of a limo getting into a helicopter that would then take them to the backstage area of their show and, you know <laughs> and just basically showing you know this is how huge we are we love you guys but there's also this sort of underlying attitude of but you're never going to be like this <laughs> and there, and Part of it is the you know the fault of the audience, and part of it is the fault of the band delivering that message. Because uh, the, the fact is, I have seen fans of mine be disappointed when they would see me sort of walk into a restaurant or a clothing store, you know, alone without security or you know dressed normal or get out of a car that's not expensive. Like fans sometimes do want to see a rock star be a for real rock star. Like when I met um, Brian May. He, he got out of a white stretch limo in Seattle, which is, I didn't even know they had them. Like, it's ridiculous looking. And he had white clogs, and he's taller than me, um, and I'm pretty tall. You're 6'3", right? I'm 6'2", yeah. And he had, he had a floor-length, like, all the way to the ground overcoat and this huge hair. And I loved that. I just, I thought, that's damn right. That's a rock star. That's Like, I was not disappointed. So part of it is the audience. But... Um, I think it comes and goes in cycles because at some point the, the I think I, I think people want to be able to connect with who they listen to as well. They want to feel like they can relate to it. Um, mm. They want to feel like they can relate to the lyrics. I really think that the connection um, that Nirvana had, and this is sort of a magical moment because this is when music television was so important to what radio played and and how right. people reacted to music, but. All of a sudden, in the middle of like this hairband excess, there is 
this band that's only got three guys in it and this song that's actually more aggressive but somehow catchier than anybody else's songs and um, intelligent lyrically if you can pick them out <laughs> and then one guy is like six foot six and the other guy's like five foot six and then uh, this creepy looking drummer and they basically looked like the audience that immediately turned out and bought their records right. and that made sense to me um, it wasn't. It wasn't about a hit song. It wasn't about. Um, it wasn't about really any type of marketing because there certainly wasn't any mm -hmm. for them except for that video, mm -hmm. um, and and them touring that mm. kind of thing. But um, I really felt like at that point, um, what really suddenly made the whole thing explode was that the audience recognized themselves in the band and that sort of throws that switch kiss did that for a lot of people it never right. it, they didn't do that for me but like for kim he he saw kiss he realized he did the math you know okay the, anyone can wear a makeup in a silly costume but he kim could pick up the guitar and play their songs and realize oh you don't have to be um this magical person from another planet to be able to write and play these songs and be you know be a rock star or be a rock musician in a band and make records um other bands like that, Ramones, hugely influential that way. The Clash, hugely influential that way. Um, for me, I listen to music that I still have trouble playing now. <laughs> so I never really had that magical moment. Um, but for you guys, you, you as much as kind of like the the average the, the average guy off the street is now the uh, the up up and rising popular rock band, medium, uh, yeah, almost it, meteoric in a sense. Like it, it was for Soundgarden, we, it wasn't like that. We um, we you, actually were what we, we became what we wanted to be, which was an indie band, and we released indie records and we toured. You know, like and you purposely and, focused it that way because there's mm -hmm. that, the whole thing that you were actually being courted before you even. Uh, mm -hmm. Recorded anything? You had the CZ Records three song thing, mm -hmm. and then you did. Uh, then you talked Jonathan and Bruce uh, from to, to start up the twenty thousand dollars and get Sub Pop going. Yeah, Kim kind of put all that together really in his brain. He sort of figured that out, and and then um, and then we got to be on SST, which was a, that was sort of our dream come true before there was um, a Sub Pop. Um, there was kind of Homestead, Alternative Tentacles, S right. SST, and we thought SST was kind of, you know, it had our favorite bands on it. And even though we'd released our first record on, um, our, our first EP, excuse me, on Sub Pop, the SST kind of immediately sort of showed up, and, and they I think they were just thinking catalog. They thought, okay, here's a band who's getting courted by majors. We're just going to let them record a record. We're going to own it and for a while. And it'll be a good catalog thing. Right. It's a smart business move on those. Right, right. And and it it, it did exactly that for them. Mm. Um, but was there ever a point for you guys that you 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 felt as those first few years that you as musicians as as because I think there was a couple quotes I've read where you've said that you know it, it was Seattle and everybody was completely bored. There wasn't really a lot up there to do. There was rains all the time, and so this mm -hmm. was something that what else are we going to do up here? And so we started this band, and it just took off. And did you ever kind of feel like it was you were getting out of it was getting out of control for you initially at first? Like you didn't really feel like wow, this is going too fast. Not at all. No, really? no. I mean, we were a band for three years before we actually released anything. So there was uh, there was a period. Th three years is a long time for somebody that you know. You the band that was probably twenty or twenty one when we started. Right. So that's that seems like a long time to me. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely a period where um, 
the the CZ record was it was just a compilation right. of local bands. To me, it didn't feel like um, you know like a, like a Soundgarden record. We were just participating in something that was local, and it was cool. But um, we didn't really like the recordings. It wasn't really us. Um, when when Jonathan came along, Jonathan Poneman, and really had an interest in in releasing a Soundgarden record proper, that was the first time we'd been a band for over three years. And I, I had anxiety that, that maybe that we never would release a record. Really? And we, we already had a material that, that was irrelevant to us. You know, we had already moved on, um, <laughs> which is a little bit scary. <laughs> um, in fact, the first sub-pop record, all, the, all six of those songs are, are brand new. They were brand new at the time, and when we released the SST full-length LP, we actually went back before that. Mm. The, some of it is after, but it's, a lot of it is before too, before mm. the Sub Pop record. Um, so no, it didn't. Things things started to move fast when um, the major label thing happened, and and that was that happened based on two things. One was Mike Borden um, from Faith No More. We played a show with them. Soundgarden opened up for the the. OG version with with Chuck as the singer, and Mike Borden just loved us, and we gave him a cassette that we had made that had like five songs on it, and um, and then a woman named Faith Henschel who ran KCMU, which was the local college station, she made a compilation cassette called Bands That Will Make Money, and it had a little picture of a piggy bank on the front of it, on <laughs> uh, the cassette, and she sent that to the record companies because she really believed in in. The bands in in the Northwest, and and um, which obviously it's proof now that she should have. <laughs> um, but anyway, we never sent a single tape to anyone. Really? Ever. Yeah, and we and we had no intention of leaving Seattle to do what we did. Our, our intention was to stay where we were and and you know make the noise that we made there. Um, but those two, Mike gave his cassette to. Faith No More's A&R person who had since like moved to, to Geffen and um, someone at A&M Records got a copy of the the one that Faith Henschel sent and, and it only had one song on it um, nothing to say and he heard this is going to be the next Led Zeppelin but really what I think it also was was sort of a conciliatory Jane's Addiction because Jane's Addiction had this huge bidding war, and no, and only obviously only one record company got to sign them, and um, the, there was kind of a little bit of that. There is, the, there was the attitude that there is going to be some sort of new kind of rock. We don't know what it is yet, but there's this band Jane's Addiction, and now there's this band called Soundgarden from Seattle, and, and I think that too was fascinating to people. Like from where? <laughs> From Seattle. So it was the oddity. You've got to be kidding. So we did this one show, and um, a couple record company people came up, you know, f to see us play a show, which was really weird. You know, so you did like, do a showcase. We did. It wasn't a showcase. It was oh. just the show we were going to play anyway. Oh, all right, okay. Um, and someone said, "Oh, there's going to be someone from." Um, there's going to be a guy, Aaron Jacobus from A&M Records, and there's going to be, I think, someone from Geffen, and. We we just thought that was weird. We didn't think anything of it really. Okay. We 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 thought okay, well they'll see us and they'll go and that'll be that. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, and that wasn't what happened. What happened was we had a, we had a great show. They saw us and suddenly, um, st st especially A and M, well both actually aggressively started pursuing us, and then other labels started pursuing us 
immediately as well. Um, I remember that being kind of sad because we had already been in any band and we knew the lay of the land and to and to see no interest turn into every label there is. You smell um, the insincerity, uh, you know. You know. I, I believe that that Aaron was passionate about it because he seemed to kind of get it, you know, in his speech about it. He, he knew who we were and what we were, right. but we knew that. All the records we bought and all of the people who bought our records had to go to these mom and pop kind of indie stores to buy them. And if we released a record on A&M Records or Sony or whatever it might be, Columbia, Geffen, our fans wouldn't go buy our records. And that was that. And we just figured we had a, we, we would take a step backward. And to this day, the, the math actually proves it. The um, our SST album still to this day has outsold our first A and M album that came out later. I've read about I've read you I've heard you say that before. The numbers are close, but the SST records outsold. And it. it's and do you contribute that to the? It's on a major label. Yeah, the timing because the, the major labels did not know how to reach uh, um, an indie audience. And, and what was happening was there was a transition, and they were trying to figure it out, and they were realizing that about ten percent of their rock market was going to these indie labels, these pesky indie labels. So they were doing what any big business does: they're going and hiring people from those labels to come and work at their label. Right. Um, and they were also going into uh, like local promoters that would do punk rock shows and hiring those promoters or people who worked for those promoters to come in and work at the record company and like you know tell us how to do this. Who are the bands? Um, who who buys their records? How do we find these people? And how do we how do we get this ten percent away from these indie labels? And uh, you know we just didn't. We felt like I personally felt like I I wanted to make only the music that I wanted to make, but I wanted it to reach as many people as possible. Mm. Um, I didn't have any attitude in terms of who my audience was. I just looked at it like, as long as I'm making music that I like, it doesn't make any difference to me. I want to reach as many people as possible. But um, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to like suddenly shift to a record company that isn't going to know how to to promote our music or get it played, they won't even know how to get it played on the radio because there's no station that they have a relationship with that, that will play it, which right. was with the truth, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, another band, I think, a couple bands of note in there, too, are Faith No More is one of them the, the, that helped all of that. I mentioned Jane's Addiction. I think the Red Hot Chili Peppers helped. Yeah. Um, Metallica definitely helped. Although they didn't get commercial airplay until after a lot of the Seattle bands did, they still um, they were an indie band that made a jump to a major label, and everyone gasped and went, "Oh my God, you know, right. that's the end of the world." Um, and also, Guns and Roses kind of helped a little bit, I think, because it, that initial step of like from from like makeup and and brand new white leather jacket too like okay wait this guy's dirtier and i can't really see his face and and they seem a little bit more hammered and you know just like <laughs> they th they helped you know they made rock like they were huge but they also and commercially successful and they had hits but they made rock dirtier again that was yeah. a step i believe toward being able to see nirvana and you know in their first video looking the way they did and and having it actually ever make a television show 
You know, there was a, there's a point that when uh, after Louder Than Love came out and uh, on A and M, and, and uh, there's a couple articles, uh, interviews from back then where. Uh, members of the band are talking about how much crap you guys were getting from some of these mm -hmm. original fans or like they sold out. And, on, and the bands too. They're told they're on tour with Guns N' Roses now. Yeah. Who are these guys? It's funny how things have changed so much because now the kids don't care what label you're on. No, it's not really, you know, now it's just like trying to maybe not be on one is a good idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if good you can point. pull that off. I've had that conversation with a few people lately. Um, but yeah, it... it um, the funny thing too is the it it was fans it was also bands and every band that didn't break up that that actually gave anybody crap that gave us crap about signing to a major label all signed to a major label so to me a couple of years later was kind of some, another way I could sort of say look you know look at us and and our visionariness you know right we, right. we saw this um, but really it, it also I, we had to sort of believe that there was an an audience that would sustain making albums that costed more money and and you know playing in front of larger audiences and you know the whole the whole idea that there would be a broader appeal um the guns and roses tour was i think instrumental in sort of almost putting a cap on that like we saw sort of the a absolute maximum of where it can go and we didn't like it. I definitely didn't really? like it. Yeah, like I, I, we didn't feel at home or comfortable playing Joe Robbie Stadium. You know, it just was to us. It was just not who we were. It wasn't who Soundgarden was, and we didn't know until then. Mm. You know, we we didn't. We thought maybe the sky's the limit. You don't know. You know, when you were talking before about. Um, you know how the labels back then were going out and hiring away people from the indie labels and the local clubs and stuff like that and mm -hmm. uh, reading the mansion on the hill lately and it talks about the Grateful Dead and when Warner was trying to reinvent themselves right. in the late late 60s and, and, and they just started hiring the hip people and they went and got the Grateful Dead over and they, they wanted to get sucked into that whole scene and make their you know start hiring all those signing all those bands and making the money off of it and uh, <clears throat> and then one of the things with the Grateful Dead was that the Grateful Dead told them the label right. you know we're so hot you want us so bad, we're going to dictate the rules. Right. And so for you guys, especially with the whole, you know, the the, uh, the early 90s with the grunge thing, and it was all of a spin magazine, everybody was, MTV, everybody was all over it. And uh, um, did you guys feel like you had that sort of um, carte blanche ability to a certain extent for, to label to kind of feel like you were more in control of your destiny, whereas a lot of bands mm -hmm. were kind of, you know, marionette? Yeah, we completely did. And, uh, and that's another thing that I like, uh, I think is really important and 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 you know record companies their their roles are going to change and mm -hmm. their the structure of their contracts are going to change. Right, uh, they already are. Um, it, I, and I think management companies also are, are more or less going to basically be the same thing. Record companies are going to be sort of like management companies, and and what they're going to try to do is create a scenario where they're kind of signing you globally, which means they're going to represent you, they're going to represent you in the live market, in the merchandising market, in the digital download sales, hard copy sales, every way. Mm. Because otherwise, there's not, there's not enough in it for them, kind of. Right. Um, and the restrictions and how much of, of your brand and who you are and what you create they own, is that, that, that part is all really kind of scary to me. But... Whatever the business relationship is, whether it's with a, with management or with a record company or whomever, um, I think it's important to to prove 
and you have to prove it, which means you have to believe it early, early, early on that it's going to be your way or it's not going to or you're not going to do it. And mm -hmm. we did that basically by we ha by holding off a major label for almost two years and saying it's going to be our way or or it's not, you know, or we're not going to do it. And I think at that time, um, major labels were they didn't buy it, they didn't believe that that was going to be true. And and uh, th when they saw that it was true, um, labels were actually starting to back away from us and thinking like that maybe these people are just insane <laughs> and then they don't want success. Um, and a couple people hung out. Aaron Jacobus was was the one that actually kind of won out based on um, a guy I think named Steve Robofsky who saw that we weren't really getting along with Aaron. So they sent this intern who later became an A&R guy to all our shows. And he would never say anything. He wouldn't say, hey, you know, you should really uh, think about signing up with us or, or uh, you know, have you thought about it? Or He wouldn't say anything. He would just come to shows and help us load gear and say, what's going on? Hey, yeah, at least he was good useful. to see you. Yeah, that was it. And something that was some that was actually A&R a and genius, I think, because we became friends with the guy. He was an intern, you know, so he was just kind of one of us hanging out. Um, and that's how it ended up happening. But because of that, we never had anyone in the studio. There was never any record company president, president coming in listening. There was never any. Wow. We didn't even have A&R people in. We would deliver them a finished product, and that was that, um, which I still do to this day all the way up to now. And it never once has that been breached. No one has ever told me, I think or we think we know how to make a better Chris Cornell record than you do. And you have to do X, Y, and Z. It's never happened. Not even a person in the studio. Not like even on this Timberland record, not one person allowed to listen to anything until it was finished hmm. or until we decided. And I really feel like you have to set that precedence um, you have to mean it, and you have to set the precedence early, um, and and then people will kind of stay out of your way. The the a smart business person, whether it's in um, whether it's a record company or a, a management company or whatever, they're going to realize at some point that if you're young and you have a songwriting ability and you have a group and you have some kind of ap appeal, that you're probably going to know a little bit better how to do it than they are, mm -hmm. if they're smart. But sometimes they'll get sometimes they'll get pushy. You know, we uh, we take two song breaks uh, during the podcast, and uh, so we'll do the first one. And uh, just, um, you can name two artists, two songs, any mm -hmm. artist, any songs. And um, it, why don't we make it from that time period up to this time period that we're talking about, um, you know, late 80s. Uh, you, you, who, were the, who were those two those two bands, those two songs that you would, if you had an iPod back then, if we all had iPods mm -hmm. back then, you would have had on repeat all day? Um well, there's a lot of years to cover in there. Yeah. Um, let's see. I was really into a band called Chrome, uh, and they had a song called Armageddon. If you can find that, <laughs> good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually started, I, I dug in a little bit the other night and started finding some of that. You'll find it. Um, you might have to lend that one to us, actually. Armageddon by Chrome. You'll find it. <laughs> I, I don't have to go on a bit torrent side, do I? <laughs> no, but just use the word Damon Edge if you're having trouble with the with the okay. name Chrome, because there's like some hip hop stuff called Chrome too now mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. convolutes the whole search engine. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but um, and and uh, anything from uh, off of Eye Against Eye from Bad Brains would be great. Oh wow! Anything.
You know, it's interesting you were talking about uh, the management companies and what they're going to be turning into. And, you know, um, back then when AP was in its formational stages, its early stages, and when you were uh, just got signed over to A&M, all prior to the Internet. Mm-hmm. And the Internet, um, for better or for worse, has also ex- uh, accelerated the expiration date on everything. Yeah. And so what I kind of see is a lot of managers, when their bands start getting hot, feel mm-hmm. like they have to sign because right. – that 15 minutes is now five minutes mm-hmm. and it could be over like that. So there seems right. to be like a, um, a desperation now to kind mm-hmm. of grab that star while you think you're seeing it. Right. I, I get it. And I, and it's a, to me that it's a little bit confusing. Um, I really feel like the, the MTV sort of created a generation that in a sense now is like has a problem. And the problem is that, they started to create, MTV created stars out of uh, some bands and some artists that didn't necessarily have the songwriting talent or the performing ability to sustain a superstar career. Mm. Um, And it created this strange kind of hit now uh, mentality, which meant, like when Soundgarden was first recording, there was this sort of three strikes you're out rule. Like if if it's your third album and we can't figure out how to find a commercial audience for you, then you're done. Um, which is the same three strikes you're out that that uh, Springsteen had to deal with, mm. you know. Um, it was old school, and, and then MTV made it kind of like one. If your video doesn't hit, if we if we can manage to get your video on like some kind of medium to heavy rotation, and you don't sell a million records in a month, forget it. Um, and I think we're still. I think we're living that right now, only to the extreme because of the internet. Um, and because of what happens virally, because no one can predict why certain things take off viral, virally, and also because um, it it's not so age specific. Like the the a lot of things sort of take off, and it's difficult to trace what age group is really focused on it, and how much of it is novelty, and and the 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 population that everyone's sort of focusing on keeps getting younger and younger. And yeah. what's not being focused on, which I don't think can ever be written out, is the ability for a band to move an audience when they go up on stage and play great songs and are a great band. Um, and that is, that's what we did. We t- toured the country off of little indie records to um, very few people in venues that, you know, that had promoters that sort of serviced these indie bands. And every time we'd go through, there'd be a few more people. Right. And, and then we'd go through again and a few more people. And we did it in Europe, too. Um, and it was a hard road, but really that's how we built a real audience, a sustaining audience, a sustainable audience. And, you know, you also have this phenomenon now of um, bands um, like the Decemberists or Fish, who never oh, yeah. really had uh, meaningful record sales, who have um, Grateful Dead-like live numbers, and no one can figure it out. So um, I feel like the idea of... Um, radio hits or hit songs in general to sort of somehow in a way facilitate selling lots of records is probably the wrong focus at this point, um, especially since so, there's so much piracy. And if you're appealing to a younger yeah. audience, those are the people who are going to steal your record anyway. Um, the, the focus is going to be being a great live band and having great songs, of course, and being a great live band. And, and no one can replace that. You can't, um, I can't pirate your live show. 
I, I can pirate a, a, a bad video of it or I can see a podcast of it, but I can't be in, in the audience and, and, you know, put in a brain chip. So yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> if you read some of the stuff in Wired Magazine, I think we're getting there pretty soon. Pretty soon we'll be able to be them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it was, uh, you actually made it, you, there was a quote that I read that was, I think it was about four years ago that you said in one of the Seattle papers and it was, you said like, you don't care if the lead singer can't even sing right as long mm -hmm. as they make it interesting. Yeah, that was a big thing for me. Uh, um, it's probably, it still haunts me right now in my career. Um, somewhere in there, somewhere in, in my career as a singer, I ha you know, I developed a, a pretty huge range and was kind of singing. I, I was sort of steering into it because it was something I could do. And um, Four octaves? I don't remember. Probably. At, at, okay. At That's what height. I've read. They've yeah, been determined. Probably, yeah. yeah. And um, it all came to a... a crashing halt with this song called cold bitch which I, I i wrote the whole thing and musically i i to this day i think it's one of my best songs i ever wrote for soundgarden um it's very zeppelin-y super heavy it's just uh, it was at the time to me really musically accomplished and beautiful you know as a songwriter it's like that's what i want and it was in a weird key and I, and so rather than go for the sort of middle ground i went for the octave above, above version so the song starts and it's churning and it's awesome and then the vocal comes in and i just remember hearing it and just thinking that's just awful and it was awful because it was like it i, I wasn't really singing in a, in, a, in a range that had anything to do with the sensitivity to the song or the lyrics or or you know what artistically belonged it was just this range I'd suddenly ended up having um, and then I started kind of backing out of that and there were a lot of rumors of um, uh, oh he, he doesn't have that range anymore he can't mm. sing those songs so he's sort of like starting to write songs where he sings lower but actually the fact was I just was sick of it and I wanted to write songs that were more melodic and use different registers and, and was listening to people you know I wasn't listening to heavy metal singers that have huge range and operatic um, performances. I was listening to a lot of different kinds of things. And so like, and, and it still kind of follows me now. I mean, if you see a show of mine now, you, you go, you can see me play anything from like, you know, going back as far as like 1989, 1990. And I still sing all those songs. Mm. Um, I've never changed a key. The only time I changed the key of a song that I perform now is it's actually a little bit higher because of the tuning um do you think any of that's because you stopped smoking mm, like you've been able to no, like give your I, voice like I, I, extra I think, longer um, time period to you know i'm not i think it 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 helps a sustained tour for sure mm. probably and a sustained life mm. <laughs> probably <laughs> You know, the uh, you were saying uh, about you know wanting to write different things and 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 not keep doing the same performance over and over again. So you mm -hmm. you, you kind of get locked in this stereotype. Um, it was at about the same time where uh, I remember uh, the last few articles about Soundgarden was that uh, some of the things that you talked about that ended up on your forty morning, they're kind of mm -hmm. portions of it were actually you had suggested for Soundgarden's uh, last record, and they kind of got pushed off, like they didn't really fit or something like that. Yeah, that's not true. Okay, um, gotta love the web. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think there was anything on Euphoria Morning that wasn't new. I may have had, I may have said at, at one point that I did have some songs that weren't, but I always did. I mean, Temple, mm. of the, Temple of the Dog is is exactly that. Seven of those songs were sort of written in a vacuum. Um, you call that because essentially a solo record. Well, the, the the initial interviews I did were for that were like sort of pre 
Pearl Jam pre-Soundgarden releases Bad Motor Finger, and, and people were asking, like, well, so how is this different than a Chris Cornell solo record? Because I had written okay. um, seven of the ten songs and co-wrote the other three. And, um, you know, it was it was different in, in the, than a solo record for, for a lot of obvious reasons. But in some ways, it was that as far as an outlet. It was mm. like something to do with all of this other music and... and um, that, that didn't even fit with my perception of what Soundgarden should play. Mm. So um, we had a pretty healthy relationship that way. We mm. Temple of the Dog tested it, I think, when it came back around to sell so much, which was based on the fact that um, one day someone walked into MTV and went, oh, wow, we've got like... I've got the, this two bands that are, that are like a, a top five radio charts and there there's a video that we have that has members of them playing together let's start to play this and so they did um and i remember sony at the time which was uh some part of sony was pearl jam's label freaked out because pearl jam wasn't formed when we made that video they didn't exist yet so they're really. freaking out like who owns so, this who owns this so they're so like <laughs> you can't do this and 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 m records was like yes we can do this and in fact we're a record company and that's what record companies do so we're going to exploit the hell out of this and <laughs> and um anyway so that's why uh, i think it had sold 75,000 copies until a year and a half later when someone discovered that video and played it and then it was all over from there yeah and then it was just um but anyway yeah the the um i think that the Soundgarden, as well as my own career, sort of suffered from a kind of... There was a bridge, I guess, between the, the old hard rock music and new hard rock music, and somehow we were a part of a big part of that bridge. But yet we, were, we weren't a band of people who really listened to that much hard rock music. Um, we, didn't, we didn't listen to Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth so much. I mean, we were fans of some of it, um, of all of those bands, I was—I probably listened to Megadeth more than anything and liked it and appreciated it. Um, we also weren't sitting around listening to Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin or al albums either. <laughs> but since then, you know, the, the first time I actually paid money for a Zeppelin album was after Soundgarden was formed and we had those comparisons. And um, <laughs> kind of go back and go... Yeah, right. yeah, I wasn't... To me, the, that kind of music was music that people who beat me up and and parking lot that school listened to that came blasting out of their Camaros. Like I didn't, I didn't listen to it because I didn't like the people. It's like, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. My brothers had Led Zeppelin records. I didn't want to listen to them. Um, now, you know, the, the, I think, you know, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, I think they're an amazing band. Um, it also, you know, the, there was a time when it wasn't cool to like them. Um, right. But I think Soundgarden suffered from, from that, as, and, and I still sort of suffer from that. Where do you put a, a band or a group or even a singer who sort of seems best known for um, hard rock leanings when that's not necessarily more than a, a fraction of what, what their influences are? Kind mm -hmm. of. And we really, I think we really successfully broke out of, of that mold with um, Super Unknown and Down on the Upside just by doing what we did, by... by putting the songs on it that we put on it and by sort of pushing each other. I think being like a Beatles fan and Beatles being kind of my first love in music, uh, you know, those are both kind of white albums to me. They're, we reached a point in, where 
We were writing separately completely. Right. I think Jesus Christ Pose was the last song we really wrote in a room together in a jam. Um, so we were all alone writing separately, and we'd bring in our finished versions of songs. And um, mine were done, done, and, and sometimes Ben's were done, done, or I would write lyrics to them. Or, um, Matt would bring in songs, and I would write lyrics to them or, or take some of his and write some. And um, we just kind of did that. So the last two albums were really that. And um, I also came up with this new concept that the song should be king and that rather than we bring in all these songs and then just kind of run them through the normal method of the way that Soundgarden records, for example, if, if Matt Cameron brings in a, a demo and the way he plays guitar on it sounds cool, mm. why not have him play guitar on it? And um, we did that. And there was a song, I remember Ben and I got into a conversation about it because there's a song on Super Unknown called Half where I'm not, I don't participate on it at all. And that was a new concept because I was begging him to sing it because his singing voice was so cool. And I didn't want to try and do it. And I just knew it wouldn't be as good if I did it. And, uh, and then suddenly the concept came up of, wait, then there'll be a song that you're not even on. And, and I said, that's it. That's the crux of the point I'm trying to make here. What's important is the songs and the album and that. And uh, so those two albums are kind of that. And the last, the, um, Down on the Upside of Self-Produced, Self-Mixed. And, I, and right. I, it's my favorite. I, and not just, not because of that theoretically, because I don't care. Um, if, it had been a, if, if it had been produced and mixed and whatever by some famous people, it would still be my favorite. But um, we, we were all, sort of all four of us, all in the studio all the time when we made that record, which, which usually didn't happen. When there was a producer, we would sort of come and go at separate times sometimes. Hmm. You know, um, I'm sorry. Go on. Well, it was just because I mean, as a, I was a younger. I was probably in my, like 17, like a high school kid whenever mm -hmm. like Down on the Upside came out, once Super Unknown came out, and I think like as a, like a fan, we could sort of tell like we if you just read the liner notes, you could see that mm -hmm. like Ben wrote a song that you weren't a part of and things right. like that. Like what? I guess the it always felt like maybe there was some sort of rift with that stuff. That like maybe you got you were like yeah. that you didn't have any that you didn't want to have anything to do with that song or something. No, not at but all. It's like, but you were really actually. Big. I was the, um, I was the one convincing him to sing it. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. To me, I always felt like like he brought in a song called "Head Down." I remember that this day like it was yesterday because we were sitting in my car, um, at a recording studio doing something else, and he had a cassette, and we put it in my car, and he said it's Ben Shepard had it, and we played it, and it was his demo of "Head Down." Um, and, and I was like totally blown away by it. It's, how, I, it's one of my favorite songs that, that we ever have done. It's like a Beatles song to me. It's super trippy and sad and amazing. And, um, and I remember thinking like, that's, this is what being in a band is about. This is, this is why I would ever be in a band because some dude one day might walk in and drop a song and this gets to be on my record, you know? <laughs> I get to go put this on my record now. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen as a solo artist unless you go and actually find someone to collaborate with. Right. Um, so, I, no, I was the opposite. And there, there, there was no riffs about it at all. The only thing was that that's the reason why they were such lengthy albums is because we knew we would never agree on um, cutting from 18 songs down to 10 or 12. So we would just max out the, the CD length. So both those albums are like the max amount of audio information you can put on a CD. Right. You know, the, the, one of the great things you guys had to deal with during that whole time period was the press. 
mm-hmm. and MTV and everything. And as we've kind of seen with a lot of politicians go through this, a lot of celebrities go through this, it's, it's the amount of um, incorrect information. Or mm-hmm. uh, as you would see, like when a lot of gossip brags, you know, uh, one look at somebody and all of a sudden you're dating. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, it, it, if you were to like sit down and be able to actually control your Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. what are, what's, is there like one um, myth about um, Soundgarden and your time with it that is seems to keep continually keep getting brought up all the time. I'm not sure if there's a myth that that's still brought up, but mm-hmm. the the one that was the most resounding all the time that seemed to be one where um, so-called music journalists would would come in kind of <laughs> with the concept of um, the fire and ice, or the you know the the constant tension between the lead guitar player and the lead singer, sort of thing. That that was the that was a broad misconception. Um, we were really kind of a, a real band, you know, the the like the difference between a basketball team where you've got um, you got Shaq and Kobe, and then a basketball team where you've got a team that plays like a team. We we were a team, and. Um, we there's a lot of like for example a lot of unusual guitar stuff uh, in, in inventive weird stuff that came from from Ben or Matt or I um, there there was no there was no like he, the guitar player writes the song the music and the the enigmatic frontman writes the lyrics and and then there's a rhythm section and the singer and the guitar player love and hate each other that was the story that was always trying and we just had nothing to do with that story or that framework that people tried to put us in so um i mean you can even see if you if you look at at press i notice it i tried to actually back out of the limelight as much as possible and just kind of tried to back into the band. My interest was so much more in making the albums and writing the songs and not in um, the self-promotion part of it, which was... Uh, I'm much more comfortable with it now than I was then. Like, now, I just... It, I have done it long enough that it doesn't... Um, it doesn't bother me, and I get to... I have a lot to talk about, obviously, as you can tell. So <laughs> it doesn't bother me anymore, but... Um, there was a time when it really did, and but also there was a time when it, it seemed to be you know that we were doing a lot more of it, and you know you would get sometimes really just bad things thrown at you by, by people who didn't understand music, and a lot of it was based on TV too. I don't know if it's ever it's I had written down a question last night about you know the difference between being a band in the 60s or the 70s, 80s, 90s, even now, mm-hmm. there's some things will always happen, will always be, mm-hmm. as an artist of any type, whether you're an actor, you're a painter, you're a singer, whatever. A band is a band is a band. The same things will continually happen. Mm-hmm. So when you're a lead singer, you're yeah. always going to be focused on. Mm-hmm. The pressure's going to be on you. You're going to be, at, you're going to, like you were kind of talking about with, with Brian May, like certain people are going to expect you to just, you're going to act a certain way. You have right. to because mm-hmm. you're the lead singer. Right. And, and, um, there's a there's definitely a, a there was a focus to try to sort of separate us um and and that was sort of something that happened back in the day that was sort of more of an old school way of approaching rock bands you know make a start you know there's a band Bon Jovi's band is called Bon Jovi you know it's not <laughs> <laughs> um so it, it, there was that way of doing it you know you find this who who's figure out who the damn star in the band is and put them out there I mean, with Metallica, it's actually Lars. 
and because he's the guy that will will talk if you put a microphone in front of him. So he he was an example I would use a lot. Like if I was you know if I was in a situation where um, a drummer would complain about you know not getting as much attention, be like, well, doesn't seem to have a. a uh, Lars doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Just, <laughs> if you don't shut up, like Kim and I would do interviews and like talk over each other. I wouldn't let him speak. He would let me speak. Um, that's the only reason why people put microphones in front of our faces after a while because we had something to say, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you never really felt ig- you didn't feel enigmatic, right? You were you, you um, had you, you were sort of perceived as that though, you know. We, like, we were, I think we were perceived as being grumpy, difficult. <laughs> um, unpredictable which all of that was probably true and that was all i think mostly just because we were hung over most <laughs> truthfully i really feel like that was a big part of it when we were on the road we were probably hung over nice if it was at this point in the day right now <laughs> this is prime hungover yeah time. definitely yeah did you ever think um you know uh sometimes we get um uh, bands, uh, even that have only been together three or four or five years, that accelerated way up, and for whatever reason, because this machine now spits them out so much faster, and they've already crashed down, and they're not making as much money anymore, the label's mm-hmm. focusing on the next hot thing, and the lead singer, or the, the whoever was the founder of the group, will turn to us and sit there and say, oh, how do I know it's over? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you were to kind of give any sort of um, older brotherly advice to um a fellow younger musician mm-hmm. in that formation of a band, especially after everything you've been through between um, Soundgarden and then Audio Slave, um, is there is there a way to tell that it's over or well, it's like, versus like we just need to go to therapy? It's, you know what I mean, it's like any relationship. I mean, first of all, it shouldn't have anything to do with um, commercial success or commercial strategy. Uh, obviously, you know the the lack of that can create a strain on your relationship, just like you know marriage when somebody gets laid off, you know, it's the same right. thing, I suppose. But um, that shouldn't really be the focus. The focus should obviously be like, what are you doing creatively? And are, are you know, are the relationships working well enough? Or is the, is the creative side worth working the relationships out for? Um, I, I saw like a documentary, I think with Joe Strummer, where he's basically kind of pleading into the camera the case of make sure you're, you know that it's the that the it's not worth it because he seemed to be sort of regretting um what happened with his band right. you know and that maybe i should have just put up with crap for longer you know that kind of that kind of thing um so i think it's that i mean is it really is it what you want to do artistically and if it is and you love what you're doing artistically but there's a problem personally then how much do you love what you're doing artistically is it worth getting over that um, unfortunately, like rock musicians aren't really, they're not the most diplomatic of people or the most, uh, well, some of them are disciplined, but a lot of them aren't. Um, a lot of them aren't. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly when it comes to like, you know, relationships and communicating. It's like, it's, um, I've been in a lot of different scenarios where, including the one where, uh, you sit with a band with the therapist. Really? I've been in, I, I did that. Um, and it didn't really seem to help it didn't seem to help any didn't you know he got we got we all got in a room together that was the most positive thing about it <laughs> but didn't really seem to do anything um i just think it, it it really it needs to be the focus of the music and the songs and what you do as a band um 
And most of the time, if that's firing and it's working and, and the music is great, it doesn't really matter what's going on outside of it. Um, you know, it's going to be something that you're excited to do. I mean, I've had a lot of ups and downs in my career commercially, but I still sort of look at all of my albums as being kind of the same. I don't value one over the other in terms of what the content is based on um, how much it's sold. And uh, I, I think that that's the important thing. Well, we, and it seems like we're kind of getting away from that era where the sale, mm-hmm. that, you know, like that initial box office weekend, that right. initial first week sound scan, because, you know, here you are coming out of several bands, platinum mm-hmm. ranking, and they just said that there hasn't been one platinum record for the first three months of the year. Right. Right. And, right. you know, what used to be a million to get a platinum, we're, mm-hmm. <laughs> we probably should adopt the Canadian scale right. at this point. Yeah. You know, it's getting that bad. Right. And Canada's going to have to go down to like, <laughs> you sold 11 records. Congratulations. <laughs> That's four times Diamond Award. Right. Where your Amazon yeah. ranking is really how worthy you are. So, yeah. you know, do you kind of feel that to a certain extent... Um, there's two parts of this. One is, do you kind of feel lucky that you kind of got in when you got in because everything is such crazy right now? And is there any part about the way the industry is right now uh, for a lot of new bands? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. you have flexibility in your career. Um, um, is there anything about what the new bands get to do now that maybe you're a little envious of? Like, God, I wish we could have gone through that when we were... Well, the main thing, um, I guess to answer the first question, yes, I do feel very lucky that I started when I did. Um that we had time to grow as a band. Part of it was the era. Part of it was we we made specific decisions to do what we did um, in the way that we did it. So some of it's luck and timing. Some of it was uh, looking at the situation and having you know showing restraint and not not I guess um, chasing a dangling carrot. And we you know knowing who we were and that that was more important than anything else. Um, the th- the thing that's amazing now that is unfathomable now is the ability to communicate your songs. Because mm. um, if you're a young band starting, for example, you know, I used to sit and just sweat over the thought that maybe Soundgarden will never be able to release a record. Because you know, what that really means is if you're a band and it's 1986 and you're not going to release a record, that means nobody but your cousins and your family and a couple of your buddies are ever going to hear any of your songs that you ever did, ever. Right. And and um, it also means that to record those songs that no one's ever going to hear, you have to either, A, save up all your money and go into a studio and you've got one shot at recording them, or you gather a whole bunch of audio gear and fill up an entire room in your house, which we did both of these things, and and record and spend days on it and then mix it down, and at the end of it, you'll have a cassette that you can put in your car and go listen to and make sure it sounds good. Maybe mail it to somebody, and that's it. Um, now, you can... I could... Right now, I could go to my hotel room, um, write and record a song right onto my computer and upload it onto my website for people to, to download before I play a show tonight. And there could be someone in Indonesia, there probably would be, doing it. And, and that's pretty insane. And um, if, you're, like, if you're just motivated and you understand the net and, and social networking, I've seen a lot of names go flying by where you see them suddenly, they actually gather attention because they believe in what they do and they'll get somebody to finally eventually go and click on a site where there's some music. Mm. And that wasn't possible. 
um, back in the day. It, the, the rules, that I think, of the, of the road are always going to end up being the same. No matter what the process is, it's going to be, you've you got to make music that people are interested in and, and that inspires you. If it inspires you, it'll inspire somebody. And, and it's got to be good songs and it's got to be good music and you have to be sort of good at whatever it is that you're creating. Um, otherwise, it will be one of those, oh, novelty there, that went by, gone. And, and that's just the way it's going to be. And it's always been that way. Hmm. Um, I, did, I've, I did a couple of sort of internet shows when my last album, Carry On, came out where I just did acoustic sets for um, online websites. And it dawned on me because they're, they're becoming more and more popular, so they spend more money on them now. You know, you'll have like five cameras and a right. really, really nice studio. and um, Editing the whole thing. Editing yeah. sounds really great. And one day it dawned on me that, wow, we have all this technology and it's, it's picked up so much steam that they've got all this money to spend on this um, filming of this. But it's all basically going into recording and filming a guy sitting on a stool playing acoustic guitar and singing. So ultimately what people really want is the same thing. It's right. just the communicating that, that is completely different. Right. It's like people want the intimate performances, but they want it channeled through. Well, computer. we want to be able to get it. We want to have access. I, I remember the first time I saw a Pro Tools engineer um, barking at the screen because it took more than, than four seconds for the next screen to come up. <laughs> and I remember thinking... We used to have to wait for a tape to reel back, you know, for the whole song. And, be, and we weren't impatient about it. You'd open another beer, light a cigarette, and you took that, you relaxed and enjoyed that moment. Of, and, and now I do the exact same thing. I'll be sitting, on, you know, with the computer in front of me and, and it locks up for just a second and I'm screaming at it like, come on. Um, I've become that impatient, nerdy dude. <laughs> Second song break. We'll do two more questions. We'll wrap it up. Um, uh, gosh, Tim, you choose. Choose the, the, the topic. I mean, I know what I, but I want to give you a chance. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I, I was just really sort of curious about where the songs for, like, the once you got into the solo, once you got into mm -hmm. your 4A morning, like you said that, I thought, I was one of the, I, I'd heard that it was stuff that was done through Soundgarden, but it, if, where, where was that coming from? Um, I just went in and started writing songs. Yeah. Um, that album was, was the most difficult album probably I've ever made because it was the first one that was just going to have my name on it. And that whole concept to me was really weird. Um, the, the thought of seeing like just my name on a theater marquee or a t-shirt with just my name on it, uh, that all seemed very strange to me. Mm. Um, didn't... Uh, I'm not David Lee Roth, you know, and I'm not, um, it just didn't feel right. right. <laughs> you know, that, that, I could, that took some getting used to. It's it still, even now, it's a little bit weird for me sometimes. Um, but also, whatever the, the outcome was, it was going to be my fault, you know, right. good or bad, either way. And um, one of the big problems was that, you know, in, inside of a band, you kind of have a, a list of influences that you all agree on, and you know everyone's capabilities eventually, and you know everyone's tendencies eventually, and you can kind of write into that, and it gives you sort of a direction. And you know what you've already done, so you can move in, you know, into new territory, and it's all, it's, it's pretty easy to figure out what you're going to do. Being in a situation where I could do virtually anything I wanted, 
I thought it was going to be really easy for me. Like, oh, great, I can do anything I want. That means any song I sit down to write can now be on my album. I'll have an album written in a week. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out to be sort of the opposite. Like, months went by because I didn't know where to start, literally. The song um, Preaching the End of the World is a song I wrote because I went into the studio one day and I'd just been having difficulty and, I was, and I'd, I'd had all these riffs and parts and ideas and I'd skip from one to the other and back to the first one again and then to the third one trying to finish something and I thought, you know what, today I'm just going to write a song, period. I'm not going to do anything but that and I'm not going to leave here until I do and that was the song that I did um, and, and just completely from scratch and I, I didn't, um, I, it wasn't parts or components of any other thing. And then that's how the rest of that album rolled out. I was also, at that point in, in my life, probably reaching my worst in terms of alcohol abuse and eventually substance abuse, and that didn't help any. Um, it's interesting, because that record is critically mm -hmm. why, I mean, critics love that mm -hmm. record. And it was also from about that time period where it was starting to get pretty dark for you. Mm -hmm. So do you see any correlation between that, you know, where the, the, you know, the person that's going through a lot of darkness and, and trouble writes something so beautiful and, and gets everybody likes so much? I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's really it's difficult for me to tell um, because I never really am sure where. Sometimes I'll read a review that's good and disagree with it and I'll read a review that's bad and agree with it. It just depends on what they say. Um, you know, it depends on because I'll read reviews where it just sounds like someone either didn't listen to a record or they listened to somebody else's record. I don't know what the <laughs> hell they're talking about. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the, it sort of led into the first Audio Slave record, too, and I'm not sure how well that was received critically. I don't really remember. Mm. I think it was kind of mixed. And Lyrically, now when I, I perform some of those songs now, I think, my God, because I remember when I was sitting there writing them, like, whew, I was going through <laughs> a bad period. And, and uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I think Euph Euphoria Morning was such a huge departure um, that it's hard. It, to me, it's like uh, it's hard to really compare it to anything else or to have that kind of objectivity and say, well, you know, writing a moody and dark album is going to get you critical acclaim because I don't think it always does. Hmm. Um, I, I think I think it depends on who it is that's listening to it and who it is that's reviewing it and, and you know, what part of your career do they have a relationship with and what are they expecting and all those different right. things that compound over it. Um, it Because uh, it, it's, for me, it's something that I don't, I usually don't pay much attention to. Um, Mainly because, it, like, if I do, then it gets into the songwriting part of it. Like, if I ever once sat down and thought, positive or negative, what is someone going to think? Then, then that derails the songwriting immediately. So we were, already forgot the, the song bit, um, the song break. So, <laughs> what do we? So, well, I'll put it in this: um, we're both fans of Euphoria Morning. Uh -huh. So, what song on Euphoria Morning is probably now uh, on the finished product the most different, the most different than what you originally planned it to be? And then off of Scream. Um, make that one easy. What is your favorite song on that record? Um, let's see. Well, the first one, um, let's see, S a song called Steel Rain. Hmm. The, the, the original version that I demoed, um, at home, I rearranged while we were recording it. We, we all rearranged it 
and it became something fairly different than the initial song. The the initial verse part of it and the and the main riff is all the same, but then the the chorus was changed pretty differently, and the song arrangement came out pretty differently than I initially planned. And then with Scream, I I don't really have favorites mm. of, of any album, but like one of my favorites is is the song Time, which is the second song on it. Love that record. Love yeah. that song. It's really yeah. fun to sing. It's that and Ground Zero are like two songs that that came out um, for me where it's like kind of gifts from God because I'm hugely into that period in R&B music and soul music where um, socially conscious themes started to like weave in there mm. and and be associated with music that was generally sort of um, thought of as just being party music and um, I. I feel like I have two songs on this album that really sort of live in that world authentically, and I love them both.
working with Timbaland mm-hmm. and the new record. Was there ever a point uh, in the making of this where you started to sweat it out going, all right, you know, anything could technically be done with the right equipment on stage, but mm-hmm. how the hell am I going to reproduce some of this? Yeah, that I don't know at what point, but that was probably my only concern. Mm. Um, once we started writing songs, we just didn't stop. So that, that part was easy. We didn't really ever have any trouble with that. And we were both very open. I was very open to to what he was doing. He was very open to what I was doing. So there was no like weird tension. Um, and we were very much in step too. Like he he would bring in an idea and uh, and put his two cents into like what he thought should happen with it. And then he would leave, and I would finish it. And he'd come back with a new idea, and I'd be finished. And we'd just keep going like that. Um, and uh, there was a, at one point a moment when I started thinking about how am I going to actually bring this live and I, and I guess I assumed that um, I was going to have to sort of break up the set and mm-hmm. do like groups or, or do like you know do a, a scream block of five songs or something and then go into maybe like an acoustic interlude or something and then go into older material something like that and um, I didn't you know I just that was my only concern and and then what happened was I ended up going out with um Project Revolution in the States and just started playing the songs here and there. And not only was it not a problem, but it was actually a bonus because sonically and rhythmically it went to a new place that that I can only go to if I play songs from this album. Mm. Um, So it's turned my live show into something that actually has more width and breadth than it did before. And it already had a lot, you know, Um, but it, it, it ended up being something that was not only not something to worry about, but something that's turned out to be um, really fun live to to play any of these songs. And I've also already, um, believe it or not, come up with acoustic versions of "Part of Me" and "Ground Zero <laughs> and "Scream." And either way, you're going back the other way. Yeah. Anyway, right? Well, yeah, I mean the, the traditional the, route. The I got flack for doing like Billy Jean, you know, doing a Michael Jackson song, even though I completely turned it into this really depressing three-quarter time acoustic sort of right. almost uh, gospel ballad. Um, but I do that to my own songs too. <laughs> so <laughs> as soon as I had a song like "Part of Me," um, which is like a, a total attitude dance track, I I figured out how to convert it to a an acoustic version, which is pretty, it, it's almost like the same mental process. It's it's funny. <laughs> so was it, I mean, was it, I know that you went in originally with Timbaland to, to make remixes and things like that. Well, that, I didn't go true? in with him to do that. That that was how we, his name kind of came up. Mm-hmm. Um, his, and when I got back, I didn't, I, I didn't talk to him. I just sort of threw it out there like, because um, somebody said that he had been saying he was interested in working with someone in rock. And, I got back, no, I don't do remixes, but um, I'm a fan and would, and I would love to do some original songs. And that got me on the phone with them. Um, and uh, I I just got on the phone with him via um, a friend of mine. And he recited lyrics from uh, Disappearing One of Euphoria Morning, which was really surprising. And I didn't, like, I... It was reminding me the, of what those lyrics even were because I hadn't sang that song in so long, and that that blew me away because I thought, oh, okay, he actually has really listened to 
music. You know, he's not just somebody that saw Black Hole Sun a few times that one summer. But, <laughs> or on YouTube, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he, he knew the lyrics. So that was, that kind of freaked me out. I was sort of interested in that. And I knew enough about his style um, that I knew sort of, in terms of his recording approach, he was very free and open. Mm. Um, and I really loved that idea. And so he threw out the, you know, let's go make a couple, let's go and we'll write a couple songs and do that. And I, that just didn't make sense to me. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it was on the call or if it took me a couple of days of thinking about it, but I just thought, you know, I don't want to do that because what am I going to do with two or three songs that I, produced by Timbaland? And, you know, <laughs> makes no sense. Mm. But the idea of making a whole album to me seemed like an artistic focus. It'll be, you know, it's sort of like jumping off a cliff in a way. It's erasing everything I know about songwriting and recording and production and everything. Um, but it's making that commitment. And then at the end of that time, I'm going to have a third solo record that's going to be this, this crazy different thing. And um, so I said, let's make a whole album. And he said, sure, I'd love to. And we did it. It's interesting how Madonna can actually reinvent herself from record to record to record. Mm -hmm. But yet... It seems like male singers can't. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed. Well, you know, I think when you come when you come from a point where it's like sort of teen fad, and you manage to survive, um, you, you've you've sort of started in that zone of teen fad. Nobody's really going to sit down and put Madonna under a microscope and go, "What is she singing about? <laughs> How well is she singing that?" You know, they don't really care. Um, and and if I put out an album. They are going to. <laughs> they're gonna. They're gonna definitely put it under a microscope, no matter no matter who's producing it. But particularly something where it strays so far from um, anything anybody would sort of be comfortable with, you know. Mm. Um, but I think that's also the beauty of it. I don't think I've ever made a record where this many people have talked about it. Um, and for me, as a uh, as a participant in it and and someone that performs it and listens to it and um i love it so it doesn't really matter to me uh, mm. at the end of the day it, it, we all have opinions about music um i'm not that vocal about mine um i i mean i'm sure anybody that that is a passionate about music could sit and go on for hours about music they hate and new releases they hate and bands they hate and records they hate and um i'm not that vocal either way usually i just kind of um am a fan of music and and make music that i like um and i don't i don't tend to talk about like things i love or don't love that much um but it is important to me that i am inspired by what it is that i do and and mm -hmm. scream was hugely inspired by the process by the finished product um by performing it now um i i think it's as as good as anything I've ever done. I mean, I'm as mm. attached to it as anything I've ever done. You kind of said before about, you know, you can go back to your hotel room and create new songs immediately. Yeah. Is um, is there anything else about the way the music industry is going right now that you're actually pretty hopeful about, that you're excited about? Um, like, you're, you're a pretty avid Twitterer. Well, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of... Because of technology, there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration mm. um, that didn't exist before. Like, somebody could email me a song email me a song, you know, and I can, in computer world, go and, like, add a couple parts to it and email it back, you know, and I can email it to somebody else. There, there's actually a website, I think, 
it's called BoJam that, that's starting mm. up where they're going to try to facilitate um, anyone. For example, say you're a singer, songwriter, or a guitar player, but you don't have a band that via the internet can find somebody that will play drums on your crappy demos because you can't. And, um, you know, in, including like mixing, remixing, mastering, everything. Right. Um, but for me, like as a guy personally in my life, um, I've already come across several instances where, you know, collaboration has happened where someone can just email me something and I can do something over it. You send did that it, for uh, the recent song. Was that like that? There was a uh, it was a it was a charity song for a super that, fan down in Texas. Yeah, that actually I just recorded at home. That okay. um, that was his lyrics, a poem that he wrote. That's from the perspective of his daughter who died of cancer. Who I think was maybe ten or eleven. I'm not sure how old oh, she wow. was, but you know, um, tragic story. But uh, um, uh, his name is Rory. De La Rosa, and he was a fan, and uh, he was in a hospice because he has uh, cancer as well now. Oh wow! And um, so the some of his caregivers, uh, they they didn't they weren't part of like a make a wish thing, but they sort of decide they they do that sometimes when they can. So they just asked him, um, you know, if you could do anything, you know, or whatever, and you know, if you had a wish, what would it be? And he wanted to meet me, and. Mm. Um, so that that kind of got me talking to him, and then we became friends. And then one day he sent me that poem, um, and it bounced around in my head a little bit, like like you know that's really an amazing thing, and I could go put that to music and like and and then like send it to him. And I've done weird stuff like that before, um, where it's not about anything other than just loving to play music and being inspired by something. Um, and I think, you know, a couple of days went by and he sent me an email saying, oh, and by the way, if you ever feel like putting it to music, go ahead. <laughs> go right and ahead. So That's I just figured the thumbs up and, and I did that. And uh, um, it ended up being really like an amazing thing to participate in because I, cause I, I, by the time it was done, like I put it up my, my website for people to hear and then eventually did it download, realized... Well, that probably doesn't happen that much where um, I still have not actually met him face to face. And yet we've written a song together and based on him being a fan and sending me something and having a story. And, a, and a, you know, it's a it's an unusual thing. Um, and another great example, I think, of um, being open to collaborations and just open to the world of music um, and whatever it brings. And... Technology is one of the things I personally believe that the that the uh, musical revolution of this generation is not a sound or a genre or a style or a band or a guy out there or a girl out there. It's um, it's the way we communicate it, the way that that we buy it or steal it or download it or create it. That's what's changing everything. Um, we have to wrap this up. Do you have a last question, real fast? Something kind of quick. Uh, something quick. This yeah. is the last question of the whole show. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes. Uh, well, the one thing that I was really curious about is uh, <clears throat> the the recent reunion of uh, of the band in Seattle mm -hmm. uh, without you. Were you aware that that was going to happen? Yeah, they sent me emails, but yeah. I'd kind of heard about it anyway. I I didn't know um, I didn't know about Tad until I guess a couple of days before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I thought that was oddly fitting because of the fact that we were on tour with Tad when. Um, 
Kurt died, and I just was like doing these interviews about like the 15, 15 years have gone by since Kurt's death, and what does that mean? Which, personally, to me, amounts of time, you know, in the increments of five don't mean anything. <laughs> but when somebody <laughs> wants to put together a nice piece about someone, you know, it's like I I do the interview. So anyway, we were with them, and and my biggest memory really of that awful moment was just sort of hanging out in this band room in Paris in this club with with the other guys in my band and the members of Tad. And so that being right around that anniversary and talking about it a lot, I thought that it was really cool that yeah. that um, he did that and that they got up there and did that. Hmm. We wish you the best of luck with everything. Um, it's, Thank you. It sounds like you, uh, you're in a position in your life that you can spread your wings and and uh, and take some uh, and and pretty much you know do what you want and and uh, uh, and th I think that's fantastic to be in that spot as an artist these days. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I, you know, I hope that you know it, it sort of stands as some sort of an example because I have a weird career trajectory. If you really ever stop and look at it, um, and it's based on kind of one simple rule, and and that is to to be open to music and collaboration and make the music and the songs the most important thing you know and i think that's the simplest in terms of advice too as long as you make the music and the songs the most important thing um something good's going to come out of it for sure i just will you know I've, I've never seen it not thank you again all right thank you ap podcasts are recorded at lava room recording studio in cleveland ohio a new york city quality studio at cleveland prices Check out www.lavaroomrecording.com. For more information on Alternative Press Magazine, go to www.altpress.com. The podcast engineer is John Walsh. Post-production assistance from Rob Tenzi. I'm Mike Shea, and this is All My Fault. You can reach me directly at www.myspace.com slash Mike Shea AP. That's S-H-E-A like the stadium, AP. 